MaxScholarsPublishing.com That uh, we should get our own. Once we have our own, uh, we're respected for the fact that we can create our own. And uh, that's equality right there. Start a record label, Miss Fish just did it. Nylon, cover five minutes. Whoa, we are too hot in the business. About to make a movie independent. Coronavirus! Brittany Jefferson, welcome to the Black Scholars Podcast. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me. Awesome, awesome. And you are located in Los Angeles, California? Yes. How's the weather? It's great. It's actually very warm today and sunny. Not a single cloud in the sky. Yeah, that's awesome. And um, how long have you been quarantined? We have been quarantined. uh, Our last day of school was March 13th. So we, you know, that was my last day of work. And at first we were just home because there was no school and no work. And then our first week of quarantine is when things became much more restrictive, yeah. right? And, and, you know, about a week into that, we've had to shelter in place. Wow. Okay. Um, and so how are you taking things personally, dealing with everything? Um, It's been a lot. I definitely think it's, you know, kind of a roller coaster. There are days when, you know, it's easy for me to stay positive and just kind of focus on my kids and, you know, take advantage of the time that mm-hmm. I have at home. Um, But at the same time, you know, you have moments when you think about, you know, the scope of this pandemic and you think about the suffering and all of the essential workers that still have to go to work every day. Um, And, you know, my mood definitely fluctuates based on that. It's hard to stay motivated sometimes and it's hard to work from home. I have three kids and trying to, you know, balance schoolwork and um, you know, parenting when you're doing it in the same building is not easy. Um, so, you know, it's been, it's been complicated to say the least. Um, but you know, we're just trying to lean in and enjoy this time together and stay as, you know, smart as we can to, you know, put ourselves in a a good position, you know, financially and emotionally after this. (laughs) Yeah. One of the, one of the things that I've discussed, um, uh, during this series with uh, Dr. Tidwell on episode 27 is uh, part of that $2 trillion stimulus bill should have been um, counseling and therapy for everyone, especially for um, those who work in the school environment and, of course, our, our kids and, and parents who uh, depend on the services that we provide in education. Um, like that needs to be a part of it, like free therapy for, for everyone. You know, that's, that's what I say we need. Therapy should definitely be more accessible. Definitely. Definitely. We need it. Um, so yeah, so let's go ahead and get started. So, um, if you just want to introduce yourself to the black scholars listeners and let them know how long you've been teaching and, um, what grade, uh, or subject you're teaching and let's start from there. 
Okay. Um, my name is Brittany. I have been teaching for seven years. And <clears throat> I currently am working as a resource teacher for kindergarten through third grade. This is my second year in that position. And um, before that, I taught fifth grade um, in the classroom. And, you know, I've been, I work in South LA um, and I work, you know, just in a community where it's changing on one side, um, but on the other, you know, there's a lot of poverty, a lot of inequity, um, and a lot of, you know, lack of access to things that we, you know, fundamentally need. And I think that those things, you know, are becoming more significant now. Um, so yeah, you know, it's, I love what I do. I, um, am teaching because I want to help kids who, you know, belong to marginalized communities, you know, raising, um, raising three black boys. Um, Oh, wow. You got all boys. Yeah. Oh Lord. Bless your heart. Bless your heart. I'm just trying to, you know, make a positive impact on our community. And that's why I, you know, love teaching and will, you know, continue to do it. Um, I'm really passionate about, you know, climate justice um, and uh, social justice in regards to education. Um, I think that's what, you know, kind of motivates me to look for um, schools or areas, you know, that are in need the most and, you know, devote my energy and my professionalism and expertise, you know, within those areas. Awesome. Well, we're going to have some fun on this episode. I'm glad you mentioned that you're um, passionate about climate and social justice. So we're definitely going to have some fun on this episode. So um, how had, so first let me paint the picture and ask a few questions at the same time. So you are in a charter school network in Los Angeles. Um, and you said you're teaching from kindergarten to third grade, um, for resource. Yes. Okay. So you're a special education teacher. Yes. Okay. Perfect. And before then you were teaching fifth grade. Yes. Okay, so we went in reverse. I started as a special education teacher, and then I became a regular ed teacher. So we went we went in reverse. So okay. yeah, my my heart um, forced. I actually still consider myself a special educator because, um, as anyone knows who's ever been in a uh, gen ed classroom, there are so many kids who are undiagnosed, um, or I'll even say misdiagnosed, and a lot of those learning um, disabilities. Um, might go over the heads of the novice, but I recognize them, um, if not almost immediately, I would say give me about maybe two, three weeks, and I'll definitely, I can definitely pinpoint who's not been properly diagnosed, and um, I take that in consideration, um, you know, when I'm providing intervention and just overall general instruction, um, because that, like, with so much, like, we live in a, I don't know what we call this age, um, what generation this is. Is Generation Z, is that the youngest right now? Um, yeah, Generation Z. And so they're overwhelmed with technology. But I look at it as like a, a second wave of like the information age. Because with that technology, we've got social media, 
We've got our phones, we've got our laptops, we've got our tablets, we have television, we have it's so many different ways to access information that I feel like it's an overload. And kids don't already don't know how to regulate their behavior. So they can't really regulate all of the information that they're receiving from the technology. And you know, I'm no scientist, but it's definitely some type of influence on them. And we're seeing it because a lot of kids are easily distracted. Um, yeah, especially especially our black and brown boys. And that's concerning because then we see um, a over diagnosis of them having learning disabilities and being sometimes uh, incorrectly placed in special education services when it's not necessarily that they need to be placed in special education services to get the uh, accommodations or the uh, instruction that they deserve. Um, right, exactly. Yeah. It's funny that you say that too, because I recently had a conversation with my colleagues because we were just kind of talking about the hoops and everything that gen general educators have to jump through in order to um, get their students that they're thinking mm -hmm. would qualify special ed, like just getting them services and just like the bureaucracy, the it's paper meetings, it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, but, you know, I was explaining to my staff, like the reason why these hurdles are there, the reason why you have to jump through hoops is because, you know, we as teachers, all of us have our biases and we tend to, you know, impose those biases onto yeah. our students. Right. And, you know, anything that does not fall within what we would label as typical in terms of behavior or attention or academic performance then we want to automatically say, well, then they must be, you know, in mm -hmm. special ed, they must have a learning disability or they must have a disability of some sort. Mm -hmm. And that may not necessarily be the case. Sometimes we just have to tweak what we do in the gen ed classroom to help it be more accessible to them. I think I'll be a better classroom teacher because I'm able to take that knowledge that I kind of learned in my special ed program about accommodations and about you know, um, universal design for learning, and I can implement those in the classroom and, you know, help some students along the way without yeah. automatically having be referred to special ed because of that reason, for that same reason of right. our, you know, our students of color being over-referred. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Brittany, I'm really glad to have you um, as a guest on the podcast because um, typically I interact most often with secondary uh, educators because, you know, previously I taught high school and then for the last six years I've taught middle school. So for whatever reason, it's not like I'm picking and choosing like what grade level is required to be on the show. But uh, I am glad that um, we definitely connected and uh, we have your expertise on the show with you teaching, you know, a younger uh, crowd, a younger demographic of students. So um, I'm going to be leaning on you because I've never taught at the elementary level. So uh, I'm definitely going to need your help. But um, so with you teaching the age group that you're teaching, and I I'm really glad you're on the show because we've even talked about this in the series of what happens to our students with, um, with special needs. What happens to our students with um, learning disabilities or students who receive 504 uh, accommodations, what help? What happens to those students when it seems like most of the country, or if not the world, has transformed a physical classroom to now everyone is doing, in some variation, distance learning? So how has that impacted 
you and your students um, with the pandemic and the coronavirus? It's impacted, it's had a huge impact on it. Um, much of my job prior to this was delivering services to students face-to-face. -face. That's majority of what I was doing. And my focus was, you know, directed on behavior, executive functioning, building independence, um, as well as meeting academic standards. It's a special ed is a lot of what goes with how to properly do school or how to properly go through school and navigate the skills that you need in order to function independently in a classroom. And we rely very heavily on being in the same room. And so right now, distance learning has made that very difficult. So my focus has had to shift from that behavior and that executive functioning and building that independence. And it's more skill-driven and tech support, to be very honest. That's what I feel like I'm doing most of the time is I'm just kind mm -hmm. of you know, sending parents exercises or video clips um, or Google slideshows to help reinforce the skills that are assigned with their IEP goals. But, you know, I'm not sure the quality of them actually completing it, what it's like, what the environment is like when they're doing it. You know, sometimes it's not even, there's not even a lot of like accountability to even make sure they're watching the videos and opening the emails and all of those things. Um, and um, even through Zoom, you know, even through Zoom, it's still very hard to keep their attention. So we're not really able to build that, you know, work towards focusing or paying attention, you know, building up that time that you might be able to do with a timer and with the sticker chart um, in class, you know, coming up with digital ways to do that has been, you know, quite the task. You know, I have minimal training, minimal resources um, and, you know, time also you know it takes a lot of time to be able to resource best practices and you know things like that on the fly and then to be able to implement them well you know that takes a lot of time and like right now and a lot of dedication and a lot of you know mental capacity that we may not all have right now you know I'm struggling with finding the motivation to be able to focus on work when you know there's a pandemic happening and I'm just trying to keep my kids happy at home um so it has definitely changed, you know, the shift of like the focus on what I do as a special educator. Um, and, you know, it leaves me feeling like I'm not doing enough because I can't do what I normally would do um, constantly. I'm constantly feeling like, is this enough? And is this too much at the same time? Because you know that parents have to be very involved, especially with this young age. What's your actual schedule look like um, on a typical work day? Like, how does it begin? Is there a certain time that the kids are expected to be online? Like, how does it actually work? Our administration has been very flexible in terms of times that teachers, like, set for their availability and office hours and how many live sessions we're doing daily. It's really up to each individual teacher's discretion on when and how often they will be, you know, administering their lessons and things like that. So typically, um, you know, I get up in the morning around eight um, and from eight to 10, I'm doing my own individual like 
planning and prepping of trying to, of, you know, creating Google slides or, you know, making video clips and things like that. Um, and then around 10 is when the gen ed teachers that I co-teach with, um, start doing their zoom meetings. So I pop into those zoom meetings when I can and just kind of observe how, you know, the students on my caseload are participating, um, if they're completing their tasks. Um, you know, teachers also submit to me their Google slides and their different lessons that they're submitting to their class. And I send them notes on how they can accommodate. So with sentence starters or um, plugging in a voice clip um, or even me creating my own version that's more broken down and then switching it out with the gen ed teacher's version. So if it's like a vocabulary lesson or something, I might take that lesson that the kids have to do um, independently and I might swap it out with my own version that's more broken down um, with more accommodations, with voice clips or video clips attached um, and replace it um, with that one. So that's kind of how, you know, how we are structuring it, how I'm trying to help the students you know, best navigate what their gen ed teachers are assigning them. Um, and then I, um, and then I'm usually done, you know, like around 10 to 12, I'm usually done with like my school related things at noon, but by noon. Um, and then in the afternoon, I'm just kind of answering emails, um, from parents or participating in, you know, IEP meetings via zoom. So because, um, you know, it states that Zoom is, I think, like HIPAA. Yeah, in a violation potentially of FERPA as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So right now, my organization has us conducting IEP meetings. Um, okay. Via Zoom. Okay. So we're doing that, um, and then, you know, that's it. So that's kind of what my day looks like. I hold a weekly Zoom meeting with my second and third graders to kind of talk to them about what they're, you know, just touch bases with them, answer their questions about completing their activities that I, you know, that I send them or any questions they may have on that. Um, and then the gen ed teachers, they each have their own schedules on when they do Zooms. So some teachers do it every day and they meet with a small group every day so over the span of the week they've met with their whole class um some teachers do like two whole group sessions um a week um some teachers do an hour office hours um and so they'll just have like their zoom meeting open and kids come in and pop in and ask questions and you know at their at their leisure so that's pretty much like the structure of our um, distance learning is like the gen ed teachers are sending out their tasks. Um, I'm giving notes to accommodate or I'm sending my own separate tasks and then touching basis with kids via email, zoom or text. Wow. Um, so you, you are very busy as, um, most special educators are, to be honest, it's actually one of the reasons why, um, I wanted to cross over to general ed. I mean, the joke's on me. It's still a lot of work just being an education period. But um, the, at least the one thing I get to avoid for the most part is the uh, uh, just overwhelming amount of paperwork and the uh, necessity to be um, as organized and structured as possible. So um, 
and, and I don't want you to say anything to incriminate yourself because, you know, I can't remember uh, 100% of all laws, but I believe, and maybe this would be an exception. So with you doing IEP meetings, um, are, were you allowed to like bring their documentation home or in California, are you guys using like a online system? Like in Tennessee, we do have an online system, but we still have like actual paper documentation as well. If that, if that makes sense, is that similar to what you guys are doing? Yeah. So we have an online system okay. where we track services, um, where we hold copies of the actual IEP documents, all of the, you know, very sensitive information. So it's through a, you know, like an encrypted database where okay. all the, all the information that's within it is kept completely confidential and only the case managers have access to the website. Um, that's where we log our services and all of our services right now are being labeled as interim services based on the district. That's what the district is asking us to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's not expected that we're meeting the minute requirements like that would normally be within an IP. Um, and in terms of getting like parent approval and, um, like agreements, we are, you know, like priority mailing those documents to the house to have the parent have their concrete signature before we're able to close the, the IEP and lock it. Okay, that makes sense. Thanks for clarifying that. And how many, um, just a roundabout figure, how many people do you have on your caseload? How many kids? I have about 20 students on my caseload. About 20? Okay, that's not bad. Um, and do you have a lot of IEPs left? remaining for the school year or it's funny because march was actually our like packed month we had i've been there (laughs) we had almost an iep daily like our whole team um had you know averaged out to an iep a day for the month of march which was like the month that we you know (laughs) that we had to come home so we were like how are we going to get through all of these meetings so majority of my meetings are done i have a couple left um that are due by the end of the school year okay yeah i think from now until june 9th when we end i have two or three meetings left okay awesome awesome um so with kids you know, being forced to access, you know, the instruction they need now via digitally. And so what's interesting, and let me clarify something first before I ask this question. Um, And Tennessee resource means uh, a lot of different things when you're referring to the uh, SPED population. Um, And it's the model has changed in Tennessee. Well, I remember um, when I first started teaching 10 years ago, um, no, that was more than 10 years ago. I left the classroom for two years. So 12 years ago when I first started teaching, um, resource used to be a pullout in, in Tennessee where the kids were actually in, uh, I guess, inclusion classes or gen ed classes. And then they would be removed from those classes at specific times, um, you know, for whatever uh, remediation or intervention that they actually needed. And then in Tennessee, it has kind of morphed into what they call resource now. I'm not exactly sure, but it's more of a like a self-contained 
environment. And again, that's looking at things from the secondary perspective. But for you and what you do um, with those kids in kindergarten up to third grade, what does that resource model actually actually look like? So our organization tries to follow the philosophy of least restrictive environment as much as possible. But we also understand that that the least restrictive environment is a case by case basis. What's least restrictive for one student may not be least restrictive for others. So I have students on my caseload where I'm supporting them in their gen ed classrooms. And then there are also some students where I am pulling them out in a small group setting for 30 minutes at a time to reinforce those foundational skills that they need help on in order to help them, you know, meet their IEP goal. And um, so you've been, so everything's been going on, uh, I guess we can safely say for about uh, a little bit over a month. So about what, five weeks now? Uh, Maybe we're going on our sixth week. Um, Have you seen students, um, I guess for lack of a better word, rescinding um, because of what's going on and that they're not able to, uh, like you said, there's a lack of, uh, of training, of resources. Um, everybody's got a billion different things on their mind. Do you see your students lacking or struggling with this new arrangement that we have to deliver the, the services and instruction that they need? I think participation-wise, we're doing a solid job organization-wise. Like, we've got near 100% participation. So kids, like, kids regularly, um, you know, joining in their Zoom meetings and, for the most part, completing their tasks and things like that. Um, So, you know, in terms of, like, very basically, students are doing what they're supposed to. They're showing up and they're completing their assignments. But, uh, you know, and they're engaged and things like that. I think for me, my concern is for the students on my caseload is behavioral regression. Like, I'm just concerned about when we do go back into the classroom. That's a good point. Multiple months of extended time with, you know, much less structure than what we've had while in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. It's going to be something that we all have to spend time working on when we get back to the classroom. Um, I feel like behavior is going to be at the forefront of a lot of special education teachers' minds Mm -hmm. get back to school. Yeah, I'll say all students at this point, because like you said, um, you know, we can't control what goes on at home. And for many of our students, unfortunately, across the country, they don't have the uh, most organized or structured environment. You've got literally some kids who are sitting around watching TV um, every day, like nonstop, or they're on their video game, or they're on YouTube, or you know some other type of video platform, and um, they're not necessarily watching content that is doing anything with their brain. You know, they're not exercising those brain muscles or brain waves, as, as you will. Um, and so you brought up an interesting point uh, with behavioral regression. That's a really, really good uh, piece of insight coming from the special education um, perspective. Um, and I was going to ask you about summer lag, which, you know, more so focused on the academic side. I never thought about summer lag on the behavior side because we've got kids missing two months of instruction and then they already missed the summer, which is why it's called summer lag. And then... Now we're going to go into, and, and so here's the other thing. So let me add to that question. Um, what if this thing carries out 
pass when we normally start back. And 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 LA, I don't know what around what date do you guys normally start back? Um, so LAUSD um, and charter schools affiliated generally start mid August, like beginning okay. to mid August. Okay. Is when we usually start, yeah. Yeah, and we normally start like around August 1st. If not August 1st, depending on what day August 1st falls on, pretty much August 1st. Um, and so let's say hypothetically that we are still in quarantine in fall because now <laughs> we have a lot of colleges and universities who've proactively said, hey, you're welcome to enroll in the school. Come on, freshmen. But there will be no physical classes. You will not see your professor face to face. Everything is going to be through distance learning. And of course, colleges and universities, they've been doing distance learning for forever. So it, for them, isn't as big of a jump with everything going on as it has been for K through 12. But what does that look like for your school? What does that look like for um all of your students, even in your city in LA, just thinking about all of the different type of schools that you guys have have there. Like, what happens if we can't come back until I don't know um, November? Right. Um, so you know, I've actually been giving this a lot of thought because I'm actually switching organizations. So Ooh. I am. I know, crazy Ooh. time to be getting stuff, right. <laughs> we got to talk um, about that, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Ooh. So, you know, I there's there's a good chance that school will not return to what we, you know, envision school to have been for a long time, even if we're not still sheltering in place, which I don't necessarily think we'll still be sheltering in place. I think Probably things not. start, you know, things will start opening up, but I don't see us all just going back to school the way it was just right off the bat. I think that there's going to have to be some preventative measures that we're taking in. There might be even some more extreme things. Like, um, I know some organizations are talking about like shifts. So having, you know, a half day or, you know, switching days, where half of your class is coming half of the week and the other half is coming half of the week, how to do lunches and shifts so that, you know, kids aren't sitting too close in proximity in the lunch area. Mm-hmm. Um, I think mask wearing is going to be common. I think people are still going to be wearing masks. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. You know, I think that, you know, there'll probably be a multitude of, effects that we'll see. I don't see us going back to school to business as usual come August at all. Um, I definitely think that instruction is going to have to be, um, you know, adjusted some way, whether it's incorporating distance learning with classroom teaching, or if it's, you know, just how are we going to do this while also social distancing, or if it's just like, it's too much work to try to do a social distancing school. So we're just all going to stay home and learn from home. Right. You know, it honestly, it could, all of those options could happen. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, absolutely. Depending on the district, um, you know, education in the United States is very decentralized. We don't have federal legislation necessarily that regulates our education sector. It's all based on the States, the States decide. So, mm-hmm. You know, so it's going to look very different for different kids across the nation, not to mention, you know, the demographics 
though, you know, just the variety of demographics and those markers, you know, that are going to impact kids who had more support during the pandemic are going to continue to exceed post pandemic kids who didn't have that. And like due to the inequities in our system are going to the most during this pandemic. And then those feelings are going to be left the longest, you know, in those populations within those demographics based on race, class, geographical location, just whether you're in a city or a rural environment, there's going to be lots of variables as to what school is going to look like come fall. Wow. Yeah. You're absolutely right. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be hectic. (laughs) CDC reopening guidelines. Let me check it out. Students wearing masks over the age of two. Some of these kids don't even wear deodorant. They're six feet apart, all facing the same way. How much space they think we got? I moved Tony six feet all over my class. It still didn't work. These kids don't know how not to touch. Sometimes they hug you before they even speak to you. Install sneeze guards and partitions. You talking about a privacy folder? The only time we use privacy folders and dividers is when we testing. No field trips or assemblies. Dang. That's the only way teachers ever been able to get out the classroom. Same children stay with the same staff all day. No switching groups or teachers well you might as well order some straight jackets that's definitely gonna drive everybody nuts i feel bad for the counselor these ain't no guidelines this is a jail sentence i can see it now kids gonna be prank coughing all on each other kids playing hide and go covid and playing duck duck corona this is depressing even to fathom i guarantee not one teacher helped make this list these ain't no guidelines these are misguided lines i think i'll do better following my own guidelines i speak to remote or online learning i just call it let you know it look like we're gonna be together in the fall So let me ask you another question. So let's continue with that model. So whenever we start back, we know that our kids have all lost um, at least minimum two months of uh, necessary instruction. Um, Even after, you know, at the end of the year, typically we have our high stakes statewide assessments. And typically after that, most educators are trying their best to help prepare those kids for the next, you know, grade level um, you know, based on respective grade that you teach. And we, we missed all of that. We missed all of that. You know, we all taught our, um, butts off, uh, the entire school year. And we have nothing to truly measure just how well, um, our kids learn and rightfully so missing two months of instruction, you know, everything has been waived as far as those, uh, assessments are concerned. So my question for you, if we go back, whenever we go back, whether we go back in August or it's a month later and maybe we got to do social distancing, some of those great ideas that you were sharing, do you believe that we should have state testing for the 2020-21 year? And if you do believe that we have state testing, do you believe that it should actually count as far as um, accountability is concerned? My short answer is no. Um, Ideally, I would love for this moment to be a moment together. I personally despise state testing. I understand the presence of testing has given us some insight on some deep inequities within the education sector. And so I do think that testing has its purpose. Mm -hmm. But I think that the culture of education has been emphasized on testing performance rather than actually preparing our students for the world outside of the classroom. The world is changing rapidly and pandemics will continue, um, mm-hmm. um, you know, because the way society going, the encroachment on wildlife, you know what I mean? Like all of this stuff is kind of intertwined. And so all of these other emergencies that we're going to have associated with climate change, associated with 
increasingly unequal systems based on our students, like standardized testing becomes more and more obsolete. So I would love for this moment for us to be like, oh, standardized testing doesn't really work for it anymore for us anymore. Let's come up with another way yeah. to evaluate our students and evaluate their success rather than academic proficiency. Right. Yeah, well said. Um, um, realistically though, you know, that's not, that's not going to happen. Um, I think that, you know, not like, not an overhaul, you know, immediately. I think that, you know, attitudes will change and that, you know, I think that there could be some slow shift away from testing, but, you know, I do think that there are going to be policy holders in place that say that we need to have it and they're going to keep it. Um, so just for the following school year though, I do think that, you know, it's their scores are going to drop. Definitely, scores scores are going to drop. Definitely, yes. Yeah, scores are going to drop across the board for some demographics. It's yeah. not going to be as much because right. of support and situations at home during the pandemic. Yeah. And then for others, it's going to be, um, you know, stark. Yeah. For others, it's going to be stark. I definitely think you know we're all experiencing this collective trauma, and so mm -hmm. it's definitely going to show itself in academic performance because. You know, I think society right now is, you know, it's really hard to focus on, you know, reading proficiency and math proficiency, you know, at the moment and as a child. So, you know, carrying that on, you know, having to carry, you know, the effects of this trauma that are happening and then to still have to be expected to perform academically is a lot to ask of our children. Um, and so, no, I don't think that state testing should count for the following school year after this upcoming one. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't think we should yeah, do it. I 100% agree. And um, you made an interesting point about, you know, kids being able to focus with everything going on. You know, with so much inequity, um, we, we already have an achievement gap. Um, also, we have socioeconomic gap. And what about those parents who worked in retail and they were laid off? And yeah, maybe they got an unemployment check, but the unemployment check doesn't compare to what they used to earn. And so now they're struggling with bills and they're frustrated. Um, we've seen in the news, uh, child abuse has increased significantly. Domestic abuse has increased significantly. As a result of everything that's occurring, when we think about black and brown families and that structure, the amount of divorce is going to increase. Breakups are going to increase. And Super I mean, facts. You know, I'm almost offended by, ah, and I hate to get on politics on this show, I never do, but I'm almost offended by politicians and uh, other groups who are taking this lightly. Um, I was on Twitter earlier and I follow Common, you know, Common the, the rapper and actor, and I think he wrote a book recently. And uh, he tweeted out um, people over profits, people over profits, like literally, he just kept over and over and over writing that and tweeted that out. And it's the reverse from a federal government and unfortunately state government 
um, perspective. Now, I will say some states are handling this much better than other states. But we've already seen in the news, I think uh, Florida opened up all of their beaches um, as of last week. And we're starting to see in the news a lot of... Uh, Georgia. Oh, I'm sorry? Oh, I couldn't hear you. I was going to say, um, I was adding Georgia is also opening up, opening up oh, businesses. Yeah. yeah, you're right. Um, but I did see the mayor of Atlanta um, release an official video um, that's pretty widespread across social media saying uh, Atlanta natives, stay home. Like, I, I legit seen her say that, like, stay home. And I'm like, yeah, she's smart. She's doing the right thing. Um, I mean, we get it. Like, our leader of this nation is, uh, is a businessman. And that's his mindset. And so, you know, to the point I made about Commons' tweet, it is profits over people. And they're looking at it from a standpoint that with this particular disease, the mortality rate rate is so low, um, between one to two percent. But I come from a background where one death, one life is every life is important. Like one death is too much, let alone one to two percent. Um, and like previous numbers that have come out that, you know, eventually 70 percent of America will catch um, the coronavirus or encounter the coronavirus. Many people won't even know that they have it. Um, some people will have it and they might show some symptoms, but just because they're doing what they're supposed to do, um, as far as, you know, hygiene and diet and exercise, they'll beat it. And, um, again, one to 2%, uh, unfortunately, um, will, will pass away. And, um, I hate it because, you know, at first they said it only affected older, uh, you know, population, the elderly. And, and then at one point it was like a, like a race nationality thing. We're like, oh yeah, uh, African-Americans or anybody of African descent can't possibly catch it. And then the very first person that, you know, as far as celebrity, Rudy Gobert, who plays in the NBA, that's when the NBA shut everything down. And, um, I'm just worried, you know, I'm really, I'm really, really concerned. And, um, for me personally, I work in a really big school, a really big school. Uh, it's a middle school that has taken the campus of a old high school. So I literally walk uh, through crowds of over 1,200 kids every single day. And my principal sent out an email uh, this week and said that we were looking to add to our already, already large faculty um, a few more positions because we're projected to um, be almost at 1,400 um, next school year. And so I'm really, really concerned. And uh, I've said this before, my colleagues and my students were dropping like flies in January. It got so bad, we had to shut down uh, the last two or three days of school one week like we literally just no more school for the rest of the week because we had so many people calling out we had so many kids out families affected and i really feel like that was it like that was the wave that that hit hit us uh in memphis tennessee and uh i've got some colleagues at different schools and different districts nearby they pretty much have the same story 
And so it's just, it's really, really concerning. Um, speaking on that equity front and, and long-term effects, do you think that there's, what needs to be done going into 2020, 2021 to address all of the inequities that we are currently seeing? I know it's so many that we couldn't possibly cover them all, but what are a few inequities that you've noticed and, and what potentially needs to be done to address I them? I think the largest inequity that I have seen um, specific to this pandemic is the digital divide um, yeah. and access to technology and internet and an email address. Like so many of our families did not have email addresses. Like the parents did not have email addresses that they used or checked regularly. We have students who did not have Wi-Fi. And as the future, you know, moves less and less from physical manual labor in terms of the workforce, in terms of the educated workforce, I guess you could say, yeah. um, we're relying heavier on technology and our students just don't have the access. Right. And it's something that has become very obvious with the pandemic, but it was something that existed before and it contributed to the achievement gap before, you know, uh -huh. students just ready to navigate a multi-hour exam on a computer screen just because they just haven't had the time to use a computer that much. They haven't had the stamina of reading on a screen and, you know, different skills like that. Um, you know, I have a friend who works in tech who thinks that like coding is the new blue collar job. And so, <laughs> wow. you know, yeah. <clears throat> You know, if you think like I, I feel like that's feasible in 10 to 15 years, like everything is going to be so tech technology based that, you know, maintaining all of that infrastructure, we're going right. to need, you know, people to be we're not going to need workers to be able to do that. Um, so definitely that digital piece. And then another you know piece of inequity is just, you know, when you think of healthcare, just like access to healthcare and sick and vacation days, yeah. you know, um, students, just how you were kind of explaining earlier and touching upon, you know, your school and how everyone was getting sick and everyone, you know, that culture, you know, is something, you know, that burnout culture and like that, you know, you must work hard, you must come every day. You know, I think that that has kind of exacerbated this problem where so many people, because they don't have the sick time or the vacation time, mm -hmm. Well, they don't have access to the healthcare. They're not getting, you know, the treatment that they need. They're not staying home when they're sick, and they're for they're coming to work. You're forcing your kids to come to school when they're sick because you have to go to work, and you don't have childcare for them. Yeah. You know, all of these situations that kind of, you know, force us to work through, you know, these ailments, and then it further spreads to the people around us. Yeah. And you know, we're you know we're in these situations that we find ourselves in like disproportionately affecting our kids and our population because we have to go to work yeah and we don't have you know we're not able to take the time off or seek the treatment that we need because we don't have access to it right. yeah you're absolutely right and then also think and um rest in and power rest in heaven kobe bryant um and you know the impact that kobe bryant had um on just everybody, not, you know, not even just dealing with sports, but, you know, his Mamba mentality, a lot of us applied that 
um, in our own professions, whether you're an accountant or an attorney or a, a, a teacher, like a lot of people apply that uh, rise and grind mentality. Like I've got, especially because a lot of educators, um, and, and I speak about it a lot on this podcast, you know, we got a lot of side hustles. We got part-time jobs. We're, we're day trading. We're, you know, it's just so so many different businesses. I know educators who um, uh, sell cars. I know people who flip houses, do real estate. Our salary. Yeah, yeah, to, to, to supplement for our salary. Or, you know, others, you know, they're moving into, you know, administration and higher positions to get, you know, get paid more and to live a better lifestyle. And so, but even then, it's like, it's so much sacrifice. It's just so much sacrifice. And if you want to get ahead, and I mean, that's a part of the quote-unquote American dream, which um, is starting to feel more like a fallacy. Um, the more as it continues, you know, I'm, I'm 36 years old right now. And I remember, you know, first learning about what the American dream was and, you know, over the, I remember writing about the American dream from the perspective of an elementary student, middle school student, high school student, college, and then looking at everything now. And with each one of those essays that I wrote, it changed like it was different. And even and even my plan and strategy on how to acquire it was different. And um, I, I yeah, I understandable. And and to your point, if you don't have health care, or even if you do have health care, you don't use it. Like so many of us actually have like great benefits, great insurance. We know nothing about it because we never use it. We don't go to our physician. Um, we're not taking advantage of, you know, the benefits that we need. And with us specifically being educators, we work in a very stressful environment. Um, no matter how great you are as an educator, um, it takes it takes a lot. It's a toll um, because we wear so many hats. You know, if I could ever just go into the classroom, flip a switch and turn into a robot and offer highly effective instruction, I, some days I would actually do that. But I don't have that switch. Because if I see a kid hurting, or if I see uh, a kid trying to pick on another kid, or if I see some a kid get overly frustrated by not being able to do something as far as an assignment or assessment is concerned, or maybe I've got a kid whose parents are going through some things, or a family member got sick, or last week, you know, their their grand one of their grandparents died. Like, you got to have a heart in that classroom to be effective, and uh, it, it, it's extremely draining. Here's my concern, and we talked about this. Going into 2021, and we're missing two months of instruction. And we don't know what the assessment decisions will be for the next school year. There are going to be some super teachers, super educators, who are going to go above and beyond, which is great but it's terrible at the same time. You said burnout culture. That's my biggest concern right now, because if we start like any educator, we're gonna get baseline data when we finally do get back. 
into the classrooms. We're going to get baseline data. We're going to figure out what are these kids' strengths, what are these kids' deficiencies, how can we address them, where do we start, how are we going to organize this thing, especially if testing is going to still have accountability next year. How can you possibly catch up a missing two months of instruction with no previous assessment and you know we've talked about assessments already um and and the biases that you know bias concerns that that they cause but what are we going to do because there are legitimately going to be educators who are going to go crazy they're going to be literally working from six in the morning and probably not leave until 7 p.m at night in their respective city can we prevent that is there anything we could do Yes. I mean, I definitely think that there are resources out there to help teachers understand that work-life balance. Um, you know, I know a number of teachers who that's who they are. They, you know, they're ultimately dedicated to the teaching profession. Um, I don't want to make generalizations, but it tends to happen with teachers who don't have kids. Yeah, that's true. Um, and you know who are single um those tend to be those teachers that go way above and beyond and are able to spend that much time dedicated to their students um and i would encourage those teachers definitely to look deep for some resources there's definitely there's a lot of stuff out there um just on that work-life balance and keeping yourself you know full and whole and working on yourself through this very difficult job it's so hard to do our job just like you were saying and we have to take care of ourselves you know we have that saying that is going around like you can't pour from an empty cup like mm -hmm. <clears throat> it's very really true. you have to take care of yourself you have to focus on your own well-being and kind of compartmentalize yourself from the lives of your students um for me as a parent it's a little easier for me to do that um, I have to be very regimented with my boundaries, with my profession, because I have kids and yeah. I have to raise them. Yeah. Um, and I'm not going, I'm not going to, you know, make them compromise in terms of the parent that they receive. Right. So that I could be, you know, an ultra involved teacher. Um, now not saying that it's still not extremely challenging and that at times I feel like I'm not doing a good job at teaching or parenting. Yeah. Um, but you know, it, the dedication is there and the focus is there, but I, I have to be strict with those boundaries because my children come first and then I care myself. Um, Absolutely. So, you know, I definitely think that we have to emphasize that with our teachers and not allow, you know, I mean, I can't say allow, that's, a, that's not a great word to use, but, you know, just like look out for our colleagues who are, you know, burnt out and overwhelmed. Um, definitely. And if, great, you know. Absolutely. I, I, great, great um, piece of advice there. And I'm going to piggyback on what you said. And administrators, um because, you know, I know a lot of administrators and, you know, that seems to appear to be my career path at, at some point. And, you know, you're the leadership of the school. You yes. know, you're supposed to be um, supporting, you know, teachers who are the front line and 
ultimately the most important factor in student achievement. So it's really imperative that administrators are collaborating and, you know, surveying educators and doing research and doing whatever they need to do to secure the resources that teachers will need going into this new school year whenever it starts and uh, however it starts because, you know, like you said, so many uh, mixed variables out there that we can't really determine right now. And it's going to look different for every school, every district, every city, every region. It's going to look different. And um, they need to make sure that their teachers aren't being burned out, that the workload isn't so much, that the pacing isn't uh, so tight and congested where we're not actually addressing the deficiencies and the, the needs that our students are showing us through data. They're showing us that um, they need to receive some type of intervention or maybe it could be enrichment or, um, like you said, working with kids in small groups. We have to make sure that we're still working on the skills that kids actually need and that we're not just jam-packing uh, standards between last year and this year or, or, excuse me, going into the next year and, like, try to bring them all together in a 180-day instructional um, calendar that's not that's not going to be conducive you're going to lose a lot of good teachers you're going to lose a lot of them you're yeah. going to lose a lot of them i think too you know to continue on with that is as an administrator viewing your teachers as humans and viewing your students as humans rather than just a data point yep. i think it's you know because the data is going to be atrocious we're all going to get it and we're going yep. to be we are. You know, and then especially if we're still, you know, responsible for testing for the following year, you know, we're going to feel that pressure of, yep. okay, we lost all this instructional time. <clears throat> and, you know, some of our students were already performing below grade level before that. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we're adding even more for us to do in a shorter amount of time and only looking at that one data point of whatever, whatever you use for your benchmarks or however you, you know, acquire data, um, you know, on student achievement, that can't be the only thing that you're considering when you're making decisions instructionally, when you're making decisions curriculum-wise. Yeah. Oh, it definitely needs to be a well-rounded viewpoint, and we need to look at the whole child. We need to look at circumstances. My son's classroom, for instance, before they even had this, um, a student in his class, his parent, his mom died. Oh wow. And then, like, multiple students, and so that student couldn't, because they had to move in with their other parent, they had to leave the school. And then other kids have had to leave their class, had, had to leave their class, so they, like, they said goodbye to a lot of, you know, friends, and they've dealt with the trauma of having a peer at such a young age, have a parent pass away. And then you add this on top. Like, I'm not really concerned about what my kids' test scores are going to be right now. Like, look at all those things he had to battle in this year, yeah. you know, up to this point. And, like, and, you know, my child is a child with support, with privilege, with, you know, a certain level of advantage. And, like, I'm, you know, I'm able to say that I'm not really concerned about how he performs on tests. But in a system where everything is so reliant on achievement, 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 not everyone has that luxury of being able to dismiss the system that we don't agree with necessarily, you know? Yeah, to your point earlier, we definitely need um, for the foreseeable future, um, after all of this that we're going through and will go through, we need an alternative measure 
to assess what kids are learning and how effective um, we are as educators. We need a different, a different system um, countrywide, something that's more equitable um, would be the word I'd use there, um, that considers everything. And hopefully there are no administrators who are, you know, just looking at regular data. And, and you're supposed to be looking at several various data points, which should be quantitative and qualitative. And so like what you said with that student um, and his parents passing, that's got to be considered as data for how those kids might perform going into next year, especially him um, in his new, you know, respective school or district. So we shall see. One last question for you, Brittany. One last question. Um, how has this pandemic impacted your career uh, trajectory? And when I say that, I don't necessarily, well, actually, you've already alluded to that. You said you are changing organizations. Are you crazy? Are you mad, woman? What? So, um, yeah, I, first of all, I started the ball rolling before this happened. Yeah. Um, and I was already considering leaving my, or well, not considering, I was. Um, but my plan was to take a year off of teaching. Okay. Um, and then, you know, quarantine happened and my husband works in sports television. Okay. Um, so, you know, his circumstances surrounding his employment became less predictable. Yeah. There's um, no sports. Yeah. There's no sports happening right now. So there's no sports television really. Like, it, like those crews have been like stripped down to the bare minimum. Mm -hmm. Um, and he's not getting paid through them anymore. So, you know, financially taking a year off wasn't an option anymore. Um, so I started applying to jobs or I started applying before, but, you know, just kind of like just to see just as a backup plan, if I decided that I still, you know, wanted to teach. Um, then when the lockdown happened and the uncertainty happened, I kept doing it and I, um, got an offer um, for a classroom teaching job at a school that's closer to where I live. Okay. So, you know, ultimately I had to make that choice because that commute um, that I was driving before all of this was really, really hard. Um, and then some of those concerns, you know, that I have about the education system as a whole are popping up at my school um, and they're very strong. Um, and so, you know, I think it was just time. And yeah. I know that, you know, for me personally, it was just time. And then the world around me was kind of like, well, so, <laughs> yeah. um, so yeah, it just kind of happened. And then, so I've, I've signed a contract. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it just, it, I have no idea what I'm going into yeah. though. No, you know, like <laughs> what the model of teaching will be, but yeah, right. just like you said, it's, you know, it's up in the air for everyone. It's so uncertain right. for everyone. And I think about, you know, like me leaving my position, my school now has to fill my position. So yeah. what is the applicant pool going to look like? I don't know. I don't know how many teachers are trying to leave right now or trying to leave their school. You know, yep. they might just 
stay just to stick it out and see yeah. what happens. Yeah. You know, I don't know, you know, but then you also have incoming teachers from programs, I'm sure, mm -hmm. who are looking for jobs too. Yeah, sure. You know, so that's, yeah, that's definitely going to be a factor. In terms of long term, though, yeah. um, I think I've learned that I have to be more flexible in terms of what I envision for my future and okay. what I envision for, you know, life past um, the pandemic. I think that, you know, it'll be interesting to see what classroom teaching looks like in two years, in three years, yeah. in five years yeah. um, and whether or not it's still a place that I feel like I can connect to kids because mm -hmm. I'm not sure that distance learning is the method that I would like to stick with and if that's something that that's the teaching profession is turning into then I'm not sure that there's longevity for me in the in this career same um, <laughs> I'm out <laughs> I'm out I'll still be in education but it's gonna be it's gonna it's gonna be in a different capacity I can't I can't do it what can I say Mamba out. Thank you for listening to the Black Scholars Podcast. For more information, Sometimes go to blackscholarspublishing.com. You just gotta go. You will never know what you could ever be. If you never try, you will never see. Stayed in Africa, we ain't never leave. So it was no slaves in our history. When no slave ships, when no misery. Call me crazy, or isn't he? See, I fell asleep, and I had a dream.